is an Odyssey original. This is Coronavirus Daily. I'm Charles Feldman. And I'm Mike Simpson from the KNX Odyssey Studios in Los Angeles. Major airline going to charge its unvaccinated employees more for their health care premiums. And we've got a lot of new COVID data out of Israel. What does it all mean? And the debates over the origins of the virus is back. But we start with Delta Airlines. They've announced the unvaccinated employees are going to have to pay a surcharge, $200 a month, both as a motivation to get the shots and also to cover rising costs associated with treating COVID if they get it. Sabrina Corlett, founder and co-director of the Center on Health Insurance Reform at Georgetown. Sabrina, um, logical way for companies to get people to get vaccinated or is this problematic? Well, I have a couple of concerns. I mean, first of all, I should say I'm a big fan of um, employers doing um, everything they can to encourage workers to get vaccinated. Um, My own employer is requiring all of us to be vaccinated. Um, I think employers should also offer paid time off um, for people who want to get vaccinated. Um, I do have concerns about Delta's approach here. Um, First of all, because what we have learned from other premium incentive programs, um, like for people who are smokers or who need to lose weight, is they actually don't do anything to change behavior. What they do is price people out of health insurance coverage. Um, And when you think about it, right, for a lot of people who might be hesitant to get the vaccine, um, the person they maybe should talk to is a trusted family physician or doctor. But if you don't have health insurance, you don't have access to those doctors. Um, And so pricing people out of insurance I'm I'm not sure that's the right approach. It could just do less for people. It could backfire more than just having the strict mandate then because, you know, United is just saying, hey, you, you got to get it no matter what. Delta, this is like mandate light. <laughs> right. Um, I, I, I think it's uh, great if an employer is going to have an insur- a, a vaccine mandate. Um, you know, there needs to be some exceptions for people who for whom it's medically um, not appropriate. But um, I have concerns about Delta's approach. First of all, because I'm not sure it'll work uh, to actually get the hesitant folks vaccinated. But second of all, I think it's not a great outcome if, if people simply can't afford their insurance coverage. Well, all right. Uh, Suppose insurance companies, in this case, it's Delta saying that employees are unvaccinated but have to pay more for their premium. Suppose insurance companies say, well, okay, look, you can pay the same premium, but if you get an illness and it's connected to COVID and you chose and you were able to, but you chose not to get vaccinated, we're not going to cover your illness. What about that? Well, um, we know that a number of insurance companies are already saying that um, people who um, are getting treated for COVID are going to have to face their full deductible and cost sharing. Um, Previously, they had waived a lot of that cost sharing um, during the height of the pandemic. So we do know that if people are unvaccinated and they're hospitalized or have expensive treatment associated with COVID, they're facing pretty significant costs. Um, You know, deductibles can be thousands of dollars. Um, And so uh, it's not like they're getting this treatment for free. Um, However, insurance companies are prohibited under the Affordable Care Act from charging people higher premiums simply based on a a health factor. So, um, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, failure to get vaccinated or, um, 
you know, being overweight, uh, you know, there are a number of things, conditions that people might have, but under the Affordable Care Act, um, insurance companies are generally prohibited from charging people more um, based on their health status. What about some of the other things that are out there, like pay protection? If you do get COVID, the companies will say, you know what, when you're at home for the the two weeks until you test negative or the 10 days, we'll cover it. It's fine. You got vaccinated. This is a breakthrough case. The percentage was so small. But if you're unvaccinated, you get COVID, you're using sick days because this is on you. Yeah, that's right. Um, And they can also, companies can also um, say, if you're not vaccinated, we're going to make you get tested um, for COVID, say every week or, you know, every month, and you're going to have to pick up the full cost of those COVID tests. But how does that that differ from the the $200 uh, extra and the premium? Because these tests are not cheap. If you have to pick up the tab yourself, they can be in excess of 100 bucks shots. Isn't that kind of the same thing in the end? Um, well, in, in that case, the, the individual would not be facing an increased premium. They would just have to pay out of pocket for the COVID-19 test. So they um, would face extra costs for the test, but they wouldn't lose their health insurance, their, their entire health insurance plan, if they can't afford the premium. Um, so m- I think w- one of my concerns is just if, if somebody can no longer afford to pay their monthly premium and they lose their coverage, they not only lose access to COVID-related treatment, they lose access to other services they might need, um, whether it's, um, you know, access to primary care or, or uh, diabetes management or whatever else they might be dealing with, um, and not only for themselves, but also for dependents, um, family members. Sabrina Corlett, founder and co-director of the Center on Health Insurance Reform, Georgetown University. We're getting all kinds of new COVID data out of Israel about how the vaccines are holding up against the Delta variant and the effectiveness of booster shots. A lot of arguments, though, over the interpretation of all the data. Dr. John Moore, microbiologist, immunologist at Cornell Medical College. So, Doctor, why does the data from Israel seem to influence public opinion, public policy so much, uh, even here in the U.S.? Well, it's not just Israeli data. There are studies that were released this week from the USA, from um, Kaiser Permanente, from another group of hospitals, from research groups, and they're all telling the same story. There are also data that come in from Qatar in the Middle East and the UK, where they're all tracking, everyone is tracking the performance of vaccines over time. Israel has a couple of advantages when we're looking at comparability to the US data. Firstly, the Israelis started using the Pfizer vaccine essentially the same time we did. I mean, December of 2020 is when the Israeli program started and when our program started. So it's well time matched. Um, Secondly, the Israelis, unlike the Brits, use the same dosing regimen that we use in America. So again, the Israeli data is more comparable to our experience than the British data. But all of these data sets are telling the same story. So it doesn't matter where they come from. They're all pretty comparable. And what they're saying is this. There is a modest reduction in protection against mild infections. COVID, at the, the at-home, recover in a few days. You're going to have coughs and sneezes and snuffles and you're not feeling great. So there's some reduced protection against that. But it's not complete loss of protection. It's it's a reduction in protection. That what studies part. also show, and this is the most important thing, is that protection against severe infections that take you to hospital is 
very strongly retained. So very few people who are fully vaccinated are ending up in hospitals. And those who are are generally the older people over 70s or people with uh, immunocompromised or pre-existing conditions. But of course, there are exceptions to that. But by and large, the vaccines are still succeeding in keeping people out of the hospital and then out of the ICU and out of the morgue. And that's great. Right. I was going to say that is the key difference, right? And do you think people have read the headline? Because I've had a a number of people over the last days come up to me and say, I heard that they were down to 40 percent or 60 percent of efficacy or whatever it is. And they are thinking that that means for the hospitalization part, which, no, it means for maybe the mild case part. And we can all get over a mild case. Yeah. And and that's a common reaction. I hear it all the time. And You see, the public thinks, and this goes way back before the pandemic, that vaccines always protect you from infection. In fact, that's rarely true. Vaccines generally protect people from disease. So we're not used to this when in the public space. I mean, people, you know, who are not medical professionals haven't really registered that. And earlier this year, we were spoiled because the early response to the mRNA vaccines was so strong that it was giving very solid protection against infection. And that was great. No one was thinking that was anything other than a great result. But it was also not the expected result. And it's also not the normal result. So that protection against infection is waning over time gradually. It doesn't fall off a cliff. It's a gradual reduction. And people are now scared about it because they're not used to that. They didn't see it early in the year. So something is something is happening that is a concern to them. And that's understandable. But 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 here's here's another concern. Uh, I can almost see the headlines, you know, a few months after booster shots are given because infection does not equal disease. Right. I mean, they're two separate things. Uh, But even with booster shots, I suspect a certain percentage of people will still get infected, right? Even with the booster. And I can see the headlines in six or seven months from now, boosters fail. They don't work. Yeah. Yeah, it's conceivable. I mean, what the boosters are doing from the data we've seen so far is they give a very strong and rapid 10, 20-fold increase in antibody responses. They take it back up at least to what it was in the first weeks after the first two doses and perhaps beyond that. So they will give additional protection against infections. I don't think there's any doubt that that's what will happen. And over time, there will be a reduction. But, you know, let's hope that in six to eight months' time, we've finally got control over this pandemic. And the only way we're going to do that is by getting doses one and two into the unvaccinated people. And that remains the national priority because almost everyone who is dying, and now there are over a thousand Americans a day dying, almost every one of them is unvaccinated. And that's a self-inflicted wound and the individuals concerned, uh, you know, responsible for their own health or their own lack of precautions, that's their choice. I mean, they've made a very poor choice and they're dying. But it also has repercussions for everyone else because the pandemic keeps going, it keeps spreading, more and more people are getting infected, 
we're not getting it under control and we're not getting it under control because of the low level of vaccine uptake in some parts of the states in the south in particular in florida mississippi louisiana wyoming you know in south dakota's having an outbreak they're all low vaccine uptake states and that is what's driving the pandemic it could drive the evolution of even worse variants it's causing economic and social damage and and so all the scenarios you just come up with we probably wouldn't face if we could get close to 100% vaccination dr john moore microbiologist immunologist cornell medical college doctor thanks Coming up after a short break, the debate about the origins of COVID-19 ramping up once again. Where did COVID-19 come from? Did it jump naturally from animals to humans, or was it the result of a lab leak in Wuhan, China? Well, U.S. officials released a report on just that, and the results did not really clear anything up. They say a lack of cooperation from the Chinese made it hard to come up with a concrete conclusion. Dr. Dennis Carroll, board chair of the Global Virum Project, previously served as director of the U.S. Agency for International Development's Pandemic, Influenza, and Other Emerging Threats Unit. Doctor, thanks for being here. Uh, Were you surprised at all that this was inconclusive? Well, no, there's no surprise that it was inconclusive. You know, to figure it out, we really need to have on-ground Um, scientists doing the kind of forensic investigation uh, that would give us the evidence that needs to be had in order to conclude what was the route by which this particular virus entered the human population. So, you know, that the intelligence community really didn't move the bar any further because there was no new evidence that they had access to. And as you may remember, when President Biden directed them to come up within 90 days with um, a more comprehensive report, it was on the throes of a report that had been presented to him um, that had of the three agencies, intelligence agencies involved, two had concluded that it was most likely a natural emergence from wildlife, and the third was less Uh, certain about that and wanted more look at the laboratory. So it doesn't sound like they've moved very far from where they were uh, 90 days ago. Okay, so let's put the inconclusive uh, report aside, uh, at least for the moment. Uh, What do scientists around the globe, uh, where are they starting to fall on this? Uh, Has everybody pretty much made up their mind at this point? Or is there a real uh, honest uh, and worthwhile debate within the scientific community still raging? Well, I think first and foremost, uh, scientists agree that there are two um, potential routes, the laboratory route that we talked about and the natural emergence route. But I think there is also a strong consensus in the absence of clear forensic data that these two routes are not equally likely. Uh, that, in fact, that there's much more probable cause to look at the natural emergence as the most likely route by which this virus made its way in. And I say that um, because, first and foremost, we've seen lots of examples of the spillover, the movement of viruses from animals to people uh, over the years. So this is not an uncommon event. And secondly, uh, what has been documented is that in the live animal markets in Wuhan, over 40,000 different animals that are known to harbor coronaviruses uh, were um, 
in those markets over the course of the previous year. So the example that we have animals in close proximity to humans in Wuhan markets that are known to be natural reservoirs for this virus, um, you know, it says that the probability is strongly in favor of natural emergence. But again, you know, until you've got the real detailed uh, data to look at, it will remain a topic of debate. Yeah, and there's always going to be that specter, right? Because people pointed the the WHO team, which went to the Wuhan lab and and said, you know, most likely it was the animal spillover. But the comment is always, okay, well, they were led around by the Chinese who weren't exactly going to point and say, yep, that's where it happened, right over there. Somebody got it and, and went out <laughs> into the neighborhood. Well, you know, the really sad thing here is that an important public health question, which is what's the origins of this virus, um, has been so heavily politicized. And it's given the dynamics between particularly the U.S. government and Chinese government, uh, it's really hard to imagine that we're going to have any early access to do the kind of investigation that needs to be done. And I would hope that at least of nothing else coming out of the intelligence report, that the Biden administration can dial back the rhetoric and allow more thoughtful discussions to go forward and hopefully uh, open up a window for doing the on-ground investigation that would really be uh, extraordinarily helpful. What would change, if anything, uh, if we were to learn one way or the other that the virus came from an animal to a human or if it came somehow out of the lab? What would what would the practical impact of that be? Well, knowing the origin of any outbreak, whether it's a a local or a global um, outbreak, uh, allows you to uh, better prepare for the next one. So you can use that experience to inform what you need to do, where you need to look, what are the things that trigger the spillover? So what are the steps that you might be able to take to prevent a spillover again? Um, so having this knowledge is essentially to be forewarned and forewarned allows you to be much more forward leaning in preventing the next event of this type. If we don't know what it is, it's much more difficult um, to really apply the appropriate intervention so that we never have a, you know, the goal is never to have a COVID-19 like event ever again. And so knowing its origins will be key to being able uh, to ensure that doesn't happen. Dr. Dennis Carroll, board chair of the Global Virome Project, uh, previously served as director of the U.S. Agency for International Development's Pandemic, Influenza, and Other Emerging Threats Unit. The state of New York has a new governor and a new method of counting COVID-related deaths. New York, under new governor Kathy Hochul, is now acknowledging close to 12,000 more deaths due to COVID-19 than it did under her predecessor, Andrew Cuomo, who resigned after allegations of sexual harassment. He used a lower figure that counted only COVID deaths at hospitals, nursing homes, and adult care facilities. And before the most recent scandal, Cuomo had been accused of undercounting the number of nursing home deaths during the pandemic by as much as 50%. This is an Odyssey original. Find us on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. 